welcome to Sleep Talk, the podcast about all things sleep, brought to you by sleephub.com.au. Here are your hosts, Dr. David Cunnington and Dr. Moira Junger. So welcome to episode 12 of Sleep Talk and welcome Moira. Hello and welcome. And do you know it's our one year anniversary of doing it, 12 sessions? Well, we thought we'd never get there, but we've managed <laughs> to put out one a month and so, so far so good. This month we're going to be talking about dreams and try and talk a little bit about conceptually what we think dreams are and how we might uh, think about dreams and the dream experience. And we've got interviews with Jennifer Wint and Dr. Kurt Gray, and we'll come to those when we get to the theme. But what's been in the news or topical for you this month, Moira? I guess we can't have a podcast at this time of year not talk about the US election. I'm noticing that they're getting not a lot of sleep. What do you think about that? Yeah, sleep's been a topic. Yeah. You know, Donald Trump bragging he only sleeps four hours a night mm. and teasing Hillary about, you know, you need to go home and have a rest, rest up Hillary while I'm working. Yeah. Uh, How can you compete with someone as good as me? Mind you, I mean, apparently she had pneumonia and she's had, say, one day off in about 300 consecutive days. So they're not resting enough, I don't think. Absolutely. And it just shows the ridiculous nature of some of the hours they mm. expect to work. And not sure whether that's what we expect of them, but certainly they want to portray that they're working that hard. What else have you noticed in the media of late? Yeah, so of interest, there's been a podcast series on The Age uh, called Phoebe's Fall, which has highlighted a very unfortunate case uh, of a girl where the coroner made a finding that she'd uh, sleptwalked and put herself down a rubbish chute. Seems to be pretty controversial, and the podcast series talks about that. But as someone who works in the area of sleep and sees people with sleepwalking and thinks about the effects of medications potentially on sleepwalking, it's certainly something that caught my eye. Oh, yeah, I've been addicted to that. It's, yeah, it's tragic, really, isn't it? And, to, and I guess that's the hard thing about such a case like that. No one really knows for sure whether she was able to sleepwalk. It's possible. All those sort of things. Are... Yeah, it's, it's tough because mm. it is speculation, you know, this this far down the track. Mm. So it is really hard for, mm. for us to know what to make of it. But, yeah, I certainly found that interesting both from a sleep point of view but also just novel way of using podcasts and interesting to see that as a way of communication as well. And congratulations, Moira. You've been appointed to the board of the Sleep Health Foundation. That's a great achievement. It is, yeah. Um, it's a great honour and I'm really excited. It was just decided recently in our annual conference in Adelaide, which we'll talk about in a minute. So I feel like it's really the, the time for me to have had so many years of consulting, I say one-on-one, because -on -one, like at a sort of individual level and really ready to take it and I'll continue to do that. And really, they're ready to take it to the next level of more population health. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about the, the general message of sleep health in general. So I'll be talking probably a bit more about Sleep Health Foundation. Yeah. In fact, planning for that, my own little podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so, so tell us, what, what's the charter of the Sleep Health Foundation and, you know, what's the aim? Yeah, well, the vision, I think, that well, the charter is really improving people's health via better sleep is mm -hmm. the, you know, nutshell. And there's a range of strategies to do that, you know, via, you know, advocacy, and health promotion and I haven't got in front of me the, the yeah. list of things because I'm brand new sure. but the like I can probably should actually put on in the show notes actually the yeah I can certainly do that yeah something that's actually a link to that and sort of what, what Sleep Health Foundation is about and my vision is to make it a really important well-known foundation in mm -hmm. the same way that the household name would be the Heart Foundation you know, the Heart Foundation and the Starlight Foundation and things that people know a lot about, but not many people know about the Sleep Health Foundation. So it's really about promoting the messages of, 
of good health and good sleep and how the two interact. And we've just come back from the Australasian Sleep Association's annual scientific meeting in Adelaide. We had a really great meeting. What were some of the highlights for you at the meeting? Well, I always love the socialising. <laughs> <laughs> About sleep. Come on, come on. Highlights for me. Well, I, you know, I really enjoy that you are doing your snapshots, like mm-hmm. the, the highlights. So there's highlights, of course, that you put in those were things that were my highlights as well because we probably uh, – we go to the same sessions. Yeah. I did enjoy, there was a particularly really, a really interesting paper looking at uh, young people drinking, like binge drinking, and the effect it has on sleep and therefore the effect on the brain. And there were some really quite compelling images of someone who's been drinking for a long time and what it does to their brain and young people who've been paint binge drinking for a short time and not getting enough sleep and what it does to their brain. So that, look out, I'm sure that Vic Health or what the, that have come on the world stage, that sort of data about how, how dangerous it is to, to drink a lot in general but also for the detrimental effects on your sleep was a particular highlight. There's lots of highlights. But interesting for me, I used to lament that it was often a lot of obstructive sleep happening as stuff only and as a psychologist it's not really my area of special interest. But though over the years there's more and more to do with non respiratory sleep disorders. But I must admit I actually enjoyed a bit more perhaps maybe because of the SAVE study, like there was a lot of emphasis on that and mm-hmm. we've talked about that in our previous podcast. Or maybe I'm maybe I'm maturing and I I, <laughs> I, I really enjoy the sessions with the with, with on those sorts of things. I particularly like the there was a session in the morning one of the first morning in fact when there was physician and surgeon, you know, Two different perspectives, like two male and two female physicians and surgeons just de- debating issues around around surgery and, and obstructive sleep happening. And that would normally send me to, to, to sleep. <laughs> and I really, I was, I thought it was great. Yeah. I thought it was really well done. Yeah, I, I did too. A bit like you, the topic area wasn't necessarily my first choice, but it was the format and it was really engaging. Mm. And I think that's one of the... You know, in this day and age, I think for professional development and professional education, the day of the boring bullet point PowerPoint lecture, yeah, death, I think. death by PowerPoint yeah, doesn't exi- should, didn't exist, did it? Exactly. Yeah, it should, should be sort of well and truly buried. <laughs> Whereas a lively discussion where people really tease out the pros and cons of things, I found that really valuable. What about your highlights? I mean, you probably covered them in your snapshots. <laughs> yeah, I did. So I tried to uh, give people a summary of what I thought the highlights of the meeting were in a little snapshot about a five-minute podcast episode at the end of each day of the conference. And if you want to check those out, I'll put the links to those in the show notes. So the theme for this month is dreams. It's something that actually doesn't come up a hell of a lot for us in our clinical practice when we're managing people with sleep disorders, but it's really important for people as, you know, just as human beings as we experience sleep. We all experience dreams of some type or another, and people often will describe them to us or report that dreams may be distressing or impacting on them. One particular sleep disorder where we do see a whole range of different types of dreams is narcolepsy. So people with narcolepsy, particularly narcolepsy type 1 or narcolepsy with cataplexy, have got a loss of the neurotransmitter orexin, which leads to a lot of instability of the sleep-wake and non-REM-REM boundary. So they can often flick between sleep and wake and REM and in and out of all these different states. And as part of that, get a whole range of different experiences where they may be partially conscious, some visual imagery, some muscle tone, some very bizarre dreams, some very distressing dreams. And I think their descriptions of dreams are actually quite rich and something I think I should listen to more. 
and could certainly learn a lot from. Or when you think about dreams, what's your perspective on dreams? Yeah, well, it's interesting because, uh, as you said, we don't really, funnily enough, being a sleep psychologist in the Melbourne Sleep Disorder Centre, I don't actually come across or don't I don't feel like I have expertise in, in dream. We certainly don't do dream analysis, that sort of stuff anymore, or well, certainly not here. It's probably alive and well in some maybe contemporary psychoanalytic circles. But for dreams, because when we were, I knew we were talking, talking about this podcast, I thought, really, I know more about REM than dreams. Mm -hmm. And of course, what we everyone knows that uh, even the average person knows that REM is rapid eye movement sleep and that our most of our dreaming occurs in that time. So at conferences and in textbooks and when I'm taught, it's really we focus a lot more on REM than actual dreams. Yeah. So when you dream, when you think about dreams, I think we do focus maybe as a society more on, on the content. What's interesting for me about dreams is the word also the, that it can be what happens at night in your sleep, like various kind of imagery or emotions or things, but it's actually a word that's used in the daytime about what are your dreams. Mm -hmm. And if you look up the dictionary, like a dream, a cherished aspiration, ambition or or ideal, that's probably relevant in that sometimes the dream, you know, the dreams are, are about things that we're thinking about in the daytime or, or tapping into our consciousness or unconsciousness. I'd love to say that I'm a Jungian psychologist. <laughs> After all this time, people know my name is Junger and, and you know, Jung, Freud, they all had you know, big theories, this massive, big journal, you know, massive, massive amount of content on what they dedicated a lot of time to yep. the interpretation of dreams and what and the connection with our consciousness and unconsciousness. And I don't know anything about that. So <laughs> really. Well, funnily enough, our guest does. So I had the chance to interview Jennifer Wint and Jennifer's really a, a expert on the philosophy of dreams and thinking about them from a consciousness and what do dreams really represent philosophically and Jennifer will talk us through some of that question you're trying to ask Maura you know what are dreams thank you for joining us Jennifer and joining our discussion about dreams now just to kick us off what would be your definition of dreams or if we had to explain what are dreams how would you explain that to someone Thanks, David. First of all, thanks for having me here. It's a great pleasure. That sounds like a really simple question to start out with. It's actually already an extremely complicated and I think also theoretically interesting and very important question. So there are loads of different definitions of dreams out there. And if you look into psychology, cognitive neuroscience, and also the history of philosophy, you'll come up with many different answers. So there are some that are very specific, just really looking at very specific types of experiences occurring in sleep and only those counts as dreams. Other people say it's only dreams or experiences that you recall upon awakening that count as dreams. And yet other people would define any type of mental activity occurring in sleep as dreaming. So I think to me as a philosopher, I'm interested in conceptual questions and building kind of a better conceptual framework of the entire range of experience and cognition occurring in sleep. So to me, it's quite relevant to have an, a kind of definition that's not going to be too broad, too comprehensive, because then you just lose, you know, the power to distinguish different types of phenomena, but also one that's not too restrictive. So we want it to be a realistic and empirically informed. What I take to be quite interesting about this is so-called simulation views of dreaming. So there's increasing convergence from different types of theorists from different disciplines that dreaming has a lot to do with simulating the experience of a self and a world. So it's kind of like an immersive virtual reality. You just feel present as a self in some sense in that world. And now there are many differences within those views as well, but that's the general type of view that I think is interesting. I think it generates 
a lot of interesting empirical predictions and maybe also new questions for research, but I think it also captures the heart of what many people think really dreaming is about. Yeah, I really like that description. Now, in lay terminology, you know, as you know, dream or the word dreams are often used pretty loosely and to describe lots of different things. What are some of the other terms that people use around dreams to describe the dream experiences? A lot of them. I mean, that that kind of follows from the broad or the extremely heterogeneous way that exists in thinking and talking about dreams. And I think there is a great temptation, both in folk psychology, so what people think about their dreams, and also in theory and theoretical treatments of dreaming, to kind of project wake state terms onto our description of dreaming. So basically saying, well, maybe dreaming is like hallucinating, like wake state hallucinations, or maybe it's just like having a very vivid daydream of some sort. Other theories that have been quite popular is saying, well, dreaming is just like psychosis. It's just a naturally and healthy occurring quasi-psychotic state. Mm -hmm. occurring in sleep. So there are many different attempts actually to model dreaming on these kind of wake state phenomena that we think are more familiar, but actually if we look in more detail, often they're not. And this actually raises quite a lot of interesting questions as well. So to what extent can we really compare dream experiences to, for instance, very vivid, vivid daydreams, or to what extent should we really be comparing them to, to the types of hallucinations that would occur in psychosis or to delusions and so on and so forth? I think we shouldn't be too quick to make those types of comparisons. I think they're useful to an extent, but I think they can also be misleading. And then we often get kind of tricked into thinking that we understand these phenomena in, wake, in wakefulness, but also in sleep better than we do. So I think that kind of carries the danger of leading to a slightly oversimplified characterization of dreaming. I mean, the big prize question where it even starts for philosophers, even just to consider dreams as experiences. So what, what does even that mean, right? Yeah. Um, and there has actually been quite a bit of debate in philosophy as there we can really describe dreams as conscious experiences at all or what that is even supposed to mean in the first place. So a lot of these questions are going to be of a very basic nature, but I still think important. Yeah, and it's really hard when I'm working with people and talking about dreams because we don't have uh, great definitions of terminology or fixed ways of thinking about it. It's often hard for people to communicate across the desk what they're trying to say about their dreams and my interpretation of it just because we don't have that language that's sort of well-defined or universal. Absolutely, and I think that is one reason why also a philosophical theory of dreaming should be very careful to not be too complex and to be somewhat intuitively understandable in some way. So I think a philosophical theory of dreaming or some kind of conceptual framework for describing dreams will also have to be informed by empirical research data and also have to be somehow plausible to the people whose dream reports are being used in a variety of studies and also to patients, right? So it should somehow also capture just folk psychological understanding of dreaming. Another way to do this, and I think this is really important, likely both in talking to patients, but also in conducting empirical research, is just to get clear on the framework from the very beginning, right? To just try to, for instance, design ways of asking participants 
are explaining to them exactly what is meant by a certain type of term because otherwise you already might get very different types of answers. If people think different types, dreams are different types of phenomena, they might even give different types of answers to whether they dream frequently or don't. So all of that can be quite quite theory laden. So in your book, I really love chapter two, where you talk about the history of dreams across time and how people have had different theories about dreams. Can you just talk us through that evolution of how we've thought about dreams across history? Yeah, well, in a nutshell, again, that's, I think, been a very interesting development. I mean, we basically have, if we look back to ancient Greece theories where People were thinking, well, dreams are something like messages from the gods. They're something coming from the outside being given to us. We see dreams, but they're not really something that are produced by our own minds or our bodies or our brains. So that's a very different view, both on the sources and the meaning of dreaming. And then we get later Aristotle then, who then says, no, dreaming is actually something like the after effect of of perceptions, of perceptual experiences that we had in wakefulness. But then we have the perceptual organs that continue to have these motions, and these motions continue even in sleep. And then in the quiet of sleep, they manifest as vivid dream images. So they're kind of the after effects of perceptions that we had earlier. Much, much later, we then get something like move it into the 19th century, so basically pre-Freud or also Freud's contemporaries, and we get ideas according to which dreaming is actually a kind of illusory perception of bodily experiences. So for instance, the position of the sleeping body or sounds occurring in the sleeping environment and all of that would be kind of integrated into the dream in the form of a kind of distorted perception or something like that. So now it's no longer an after effect of a perception you had in wakefulness as in Aristotle, but it's actually a misperception of something that is going on while you are sleeping. Mm -hmm. And then you have Freud who says something completely different again. So here we have the idea that dreams are messages of sorts, but they're not really caused by the sleeping body, but they're caused by the psyche. So they're kind of a message from the unconscious in some sense, some kind of wish fulfillment. So that's again linking to a very different view, both on the sources and the meaning of dreaming. How do we then transition from Freud's way of thinking about dreams to a more neuroscientific way of thinking about dreams, such as uh, Alan Hobson? Right. So Hobson's theory is probably the most developed and the most influential neuroscientific account of what it is to dream. And here, it's not a coincidence, I think, that he is um, also one of the most passionate critics of Freud um, that are out there. And his idea really is going to be a way to move away from these psychic, psychological sources of dreaming. Dreaming is a meaningful, in some sense, meaningful activity that has to be interpreted. And he is going to move to a very brain-based account of dreaming. So where you can really look at the different for instance, areas in the cortex that are being activated, brainstem-driven activity, a large part of which, at least in his AIM model, is fairly random. Mm -hmm. So he's basically going to be saying, well, you have semi-random types of activity, brain activity occurring in sleep. These are essentially the same or similar types of brain activation patterns that you would see in waking perception. So the brain then misinterprets them as being instances of waking perceptions, thus generating kind of these vivid quasi-hallucinatory dream narratives. And then the brain just tries to make the best sense 
that it can of these essentially random types of input. So he would say dreaming is not necessarily a meaningful activity. Some dreams can be meaningful. Sometimes the way our brain makes sense of this this kind of chaotic input does tell us something about ourselves. And also the form of dreaming in general is going to be informative as to what, as kind of the core of consciousness or what it is to be conscious, what it is to perceive. But not every dream is going to have a kind of meaning that you have to decode or interpret as that would have been the case in Freudian dream theory. Yeah, I really subscribe to that neuroscientific theory that Hobson espouses. But when I work with people, too often it comes up that there are themes in dreams. And so I just don't think Hobson's randomness of the themes really accounts for the why some of the things come up in sleep. And then I think the Freudian account is too much about the why and not about enough about the neuroscience. So I just we, we probably haven't got all the answers as yet. Yeah, I agree. I think one challenge here is to really try to bring together these brain-based accounts with exactly the apparent meaning and coherence and the kind of narrative structure that seems to be present in a lot of dreams. I mean, one challenge here is going to be that those dreams that are most vividly recalled after awakening and that often seem to be meaningful, that's likely a very small percentage of overall dream activity. I mean, we know from laboratory studies that we all dream you know, five to six times, probably a lot more every night, both in REM sleep and non-REM sleep. And most of that is just forgotten unless you wake up immediately and try to remember it. So probably those dreams that really leave a vivid and lasting impression and that seem subjectively really meaningful to individuals are just kind of the tip of the iceberg. So that said, it's kind of a huge challenge how to bring together these different types of data, so subjective impression, subjective report, but also, for instance, EEG measures of brain activity and how to bring them together to form a coherent whole, so a coherent theory of what it is to dream and why we dream the way we do. And I think we're really just at the beginning of that. So even just looking at the memory sources of dreaming, so why do different types of experiences get integrated in dreams of waking experiences and in what type of pattern, which memories are selected and how are they changed in our dreams as compared to wakefulness? How does that change in different you know, life situations, for instance? following trauma or even just during a trip or during stressful periods and all of that. I think people are really just beginning to understand that. And there are a lot of studies out there, but first we really need a coherent story of why people events and experiences that they do. And then we can maybe begin to tell a richer story about how dreams come to have personal significance. Mm -hmm. And you talked a little bit about non-REM dreams and REM dreams. You know, when I talk with people, they'll, they'll often use the word dreams to talk about some experiences right as they drift off to sleep, but also use dreams to talk about those ruminations about recent events and also use that term to talk about that bizarre, can't work out where that came from, vivid type of dream experience. Can you just talk us through the different types of dream experiences that people may describe? Yes, certainly. So I think that is, again, a really interesting empirical question. So how do different types of experience that we can describe in different ways actually relate to different sleep stages? So a lot of people already have very vivid experiences, and it's quite easy to do this yourself by just 
paying attention to what's happening when you're falling asleep. So the sleep onset period is actually a really interesting one where you can have a range of experiences beginning with kind of isolated or very quick snapshot-like visual experiences. Often these can be just kind of like geometrical patterns or kind of faces or you might have isolated sounds. And in the sleep onset period, you can get kind of a progression from these almost isolated hallucinatory events then merging into kind of more fully immersive dreams, so what I would call dreaming proper, where there's really a feeling of being present suddenly in an environment that is different from the one that you're actually in. So you're no longer in your bed, but you're in some kind of different world. Mm-hmm. There's a sudden experience of presence. So that sleep onset period is already one that will give rise to a range of different types of experiences that we can grasp in different ways. Traditionally, it's often been quite popular among sleep and dream researchers to think that dreaming, so this was thought mainly in the 1950s, that dreaming is almost restricted to so-called rapid eye movement sleep. And it's now becoming clear, and actually most researchers working today would accept that dreaming, so vivid, hallucinatory, bizarre dreaming, where you have this experience of a self in a world, um, you know, this whole narrative, often very emotional, all of that kind of stereotype dreaming, that even that can occur in all stages of sleep. So even just investigating how this type of hallucinatory, bizarre dreaming aligns with different types of sleep stages is in itself kind of a very big and ongoing research project and it's very unclear. But alongside that, I've recently begun to be interested in experiences that are not properly dreamful in that sense of vividly hallucinatory, bizarre simulation type experiences, but that nonetheless occur quite frequently in sleep. So there might be you know, kind of still persisting types of sensory experiences, perceptions, hearing sounds, having bodily sensations, and so on, that don't occur in the contra- in the context of kind of a more complex narrative or a hallucinatory context that still can occur in sleep. Or you might have something like sleep thinking, where you're just kind of going over the plans that you have for the next day or something like that. Yes. Occurring independently of visual imagery and that type of thing. So I think a good typology of sleep experience is going to distinguish actually dreaming from a number of dreamless types of sleep experience and then investigate how those, again, are going to change you know, in different life situations, how they're going to influence waking mood, maybe also memory functions and so on and so forth, and also how they align with different sleep stages. Thank you very much, Jennifer, for such a great explanation. I've got to say, I really enjoyed your book, Dreaming, a Conceptual Framework for Philosophy of Mind and Empirical Research. But It's an incredibly rich text and incredibly rich uh, for people if they're interested in reading more about dreams and really exploring this concept of conceptually thinking about what dreams actually are. So people can get that. It's published by MIT Press, and I really highly recommend it. It's an excellent book about dreams. So Jennifer, if people are looking to read any of your other material, is there material online that that they can read? Yeah. One thing I have for people who are interested in the philosophy of dreaming, there's an article on the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. It's free and open access called Dreams and Dreaming. I have a series of blog posts that I did on the book, again, that are freely available on the Brains blog. 
and aside from that, um, about a year ago, I edited a large collection together with Thomas Metzinger called Open Mind. It's available at openmind.net. And that will be interesting. So there we have about 40 target articles from different leaders in the fields of philosophy of mind, cognitive neuroscience, psychology, just a really broad collection of articles on consciousness, cognition, the self. And we had kind of junior researchers and students respond to them. So there's kind of a debate that developed around all of those target papers that can be quite interesting. A few of them are on sleep sleep and dreaming as well, but it might be interesting to browse around. And all of that is free and open access as well. Great. Thanks for your help, Jennifer. Well, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. I had a great time talking with Jennifer. I really could have talked to her all day about dreams. Man, that's fascinating. Yeah, great interview. So I wish I could have been there. It's fascinating. And she sounded very, very intelligent, interested. Yeah, so what do you make of that concept of, you know, sort of thinking about dreams not just as sort of REM or non-REM, but trying to think of it more about that sort of conscious awareness and whether there's themes and... Yeah, well, this is, I guess, where I can answer with two different hats on. Me, me, Moira Junger, the person, or me, Moira Junger, the health psychologist working at the Melbourne Sleep Disorder Centre, because there's two different things going on there. Mm -hmm. And I think that's important to discuss, but we can maybe tease that at another time. I'm right on board with the, you know, the, the consciousness and the connections and what possibly is there and how we can test that. And I'd love to know more and, and do more or be more active in dreams but what happens the reality in the clinical work and well, my clinical work in this setting is that it's very much around sort of this this evidence space where and our evidence evidence base at the moment is pretty much randomized controlled trials etc and this stuff doesn't fall into that no unfortunately yeah. the way but i but there's no it doesn't mean there's not evidence but the evidence that the, the way i work i feel like i have to justify with the main funding from medicare and a range of things is yeah. they expect a certain CBT sort of style, but it's not to say that I, so yeah, me, the Moira Junger, I'm there, I'm going to read the book. Yeah, so Jennifer's book's absolutely fantastic. It, it's a fair bit of work. It's a long and detailed book, but absolutely fascinating. I can highly recommend it. Now, I also had the chance to interview Dr. Curtis Gray, and Kurt's a psychiatrist from Brisbane, and I wanted to really tease out from Kurt a little bit about what we were been talking about more the clinical side of dreams and particularly get Kurt's perspective as a psychiatrist and how psychiatrists think about dreams. So thanks for joining us Kurt. We've heard from Jennifer Wint about the conceptualisation of dreams and her views. How do psychiatrists think about dreams? The great-grandfather of psychiatry, Sigmund Freud, you know, said that dreams are the royal road to the unconscious. And I suppose for a long period of time, um, psychiatrists thought about dreams as being representative of what's going on in your unconscious mind but over more recent times I think most psychiatrists either um, sadly in my view don't really give much consideration to dreams or really just see them as being something that is in a way not so much for us. There are certainly some um, very relevant aspects of dreams for psychiatry, like some conditions have uh, dreams often as a feature. But I think outside of that area, most people have probably moved to more of a sort of a neuropsychiatry understanding of dreams, which is roughly put uh, the, the mind's way of sifting and sorting new experience in the context of the old. Mm -hmm. 
So in 2016, is dream analysis something psychiatrists engage in? Um, I don't know. I don't even know one. Who, who does it? I mean, it's a great question in a way because it, it illustrates how far psychiatry has come from the concept of analysis as a sort of mode of inquiry and treatment in general. And I don't know any psychiatrists who practice psychoanalysis anymore. I think most psychiatrists would... Their ears would prick up if somebody said something about dreams and it would start a sort of a, a chain of uh, you know, cognitive events thinking about what could this possibly be. And it wouldn't so much be an analysis, but it would still be some sort of effort to understand you know, what, what might this be saying about what's going on in the person's life. Not necessarily that they're sort of fully unaware of, but maybe something that is a bit beyond conscious awareness. So maybe looking for themes, for example, that come up often in the dreams. And psychiatric disorders themselves can sometimes impact on dreams through the neurobiology and through the changes. You know, when someone's describing a change in dreams, does that make you think of anything in particular in terms of psychiatric disorders? Definitely. I mean, it's well recognised, I think, that in post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, uh, dreams and other so-called re-experiencing phenomena are common and in fact probably one of the hallmarks of the condition and in those dreams they're usually at the nightmare end of the spectrum you know a very distressing and troubling dream and very often a replay if not an exact replay but a, a, a thematic replay if you like of the sort of trauma that the person's experienced and it's not necessarily experienced recently it's not that unusual for things to happen in people's lives that might act as a precipitant to earlier traumas being, if you like, uncovered, uh, reawoken, and sometimes that'll be manifest in the form of dreams. But probably more commonly is distressing dreams and troubling dreams in depression. Mm -hmm. So if you just looked at the group of psychiatric patients, so to speak, who are experiencing bad dreams, most of those probably won't have PTSD. It'll probably be a depression phenomenon. And then, of course, there's a a group of people who have what you might call vivid dreams, not necessarily traumatic, who probably psychiatrists aren't seeing those patients very often. But they're certainly out there, and I've seen some patients who have reported that. They're usually not referred for that, but because of my interest in sleep... I'll, I'll often ask about sleep phenomena. And, you know, I've been sort of surprised at the number of people who will, who will then, you know, tell me something about their dreams. And some people are not bothered by that or by dream content, and some people are terribly bothered by dream content, even when I might be thinking, look, that's entirely normal. This yeah. is exactly like what dreams are like. Yeah. yeah. And I certainly see people who can even see... Um, maybe they've got depression and vivid dreams rather than distressing dreams, but just vivid dreams is part of their symptomatology. And it can almost be a barometer for them in some respects of how they're travelling. If the dream intensity or frequency goes up, it's often a sign that that arousal level or sympathetic activity is building up and if dream intensity comes down, it's sometimes a reflection they're doing better. What, what about some of the treatments you use, Kurt, in psychiatry? Do they have an impact on dreams? Definitely. I suppose summarize treatments in psychiatry into somatic or physical treatments, medications, ECT, increasingly other sorts of treatments like uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation and psychological sorts of therapies. So 
With the former, there are some medications that might lead to uh, an exacerbation of vivid dreams. Uh, there are some medications when you come off them, uh, people will get uh, REM sleep rebound, and so they'll have very vivid dreams. But most of our medications uh, probably tend to sort of diminish dream activity. On the other hand, the psychological therapies are usually not targeting dreams at all, specifically. But occasionally, when uh, in the context of a psychotherapy, earlier traumatic events troubling events are, are being um, not so much uncovered but dealt with perhaps again by the individual. You know, it's not unusual to see a corresponding sort of increase in somebody's uh, dream activity and dream content. As you say, not always distressing, yeah. not necessarily nightmares, but maybe as a barometer sometimes of, you know, just the m sort of mental activity and therapeutic work that's going on. And then I suppose there's some medications which uh, probably are a bit underutilised in psychiatry still at the moment that might be really helpful in, in some cases, for example, in post-traumatic stress disorder when people are having terrible nightmares. You know, there's pretty good evidence for, for the old antihypertensive agent Prazosin to be used. Um, there is some evidence for some other agents, but um, uh, the better evidence is probably for Prazosin. Yeah. I think we don't use it enough, but having said that, I am reasonably confident that it is increasingly being used in that group as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's good. And as an observer, I'll see um, some of the atypical antipsychotics sometimes get used by psych your psychiatric colleagues in that situation. Mm. Yeah, it is a role for potentially some of the older drugs, which we do find effective. You talked a bit about sometimes if people are doing psychologically based treatment, it can bring out dreams or make dreams more intense. Mm. What about psychologically based treatments to help with dreams or reduce the intensity of dreams? Yeah, so if we look at the, the PTSD population, it's pretty clear that there are some specific therapies addressing the, the psychological trauma, trauma-focused CBT particularly. And they, like in all areas of medicine, when there is a, a sort of identified first-line treatment, it should, at the very least, be considered and discussed. Mm -hmm. And fortunately, most of the time, it is. But of course, again, like in all areas of medicine, not everybody can tolerate it. So other sorts of psychotherapy, but again, focusing on the trauma or coping with the trauma might be utilised in the PTSD group. I'm not aware of any specific sort of approach to, to dreams in depression, uh, but most of us would be utilising the usual sort of treatment modalities in depression anyway, and you'd be hoping that over time as the syndrome, the condition improved, that the dreaming component of that would improve as well. And then there's the group who most psychiatrists probably wouldn't see and even if they did they probably wouldn't have much idea because we're not really trained or taught about it the, the sort of nightmare disorder type patients or patients even if it's not nightmares but who just have and I've certainly seen a few cases of this a very sort of vivid sort of dreaming mm -hmm. so the, there are specific psychological therapies image rehearsal therapy and and a sort of variant of that lucid dreaming therapy have been developed I suppose would be the right word and trialled and they've got some promise is my understanding but I think from a psychiatry point of view most of us wouldn't know much about them I, I don't know much about them but I'm certainly not trained in them and I think 
like most things in, in medical practice, if you're not trained in something, you probably shouldn't be doing it yeah. unless you're getting supervision and learning it along the way, which is fine. I'd be hoping that over time, you know, I might develop some skills and so might others. Thanks a lot for your help, Kurt. My pleasure, David. So that was very interesting from Kurt Neat. Moira, he talked about image rehearsal therapy. That is one of the clinical treatments that we use. So what is that? Well, I feel like I'm pretty well versed in imagery rehearsal therapy. I've been using it for a long time. Mind you, had to be sort of self, sort of learn it myself with a bit of supervision and some good manuals. So what it is, it's a cognitive behavioural therapy and it's it's looking based on someone might, someone has, it's with people with recurring chronic nightmare disorder mm-hmm. and usually it pretty much post-trauma. It's usually people with trauma. And so with that, they have, there's people who have a uh, often theme or recurring dreams mm-hmm. or really strong recurring themes. And so the, the idea of, in a nutshell of IRT is to sequentially and systematically pick out a dream or a theme and in the session, so awake with the therapist, rehearse the, a different ending. So find out what's going on with the dream, cut it at the awful bit, mm-hmm. do a different ending, rehearse that ending in the session and get them to practice the ending at home, yeah. in their mind, out loud, we can even actually can go as far as have scripts for it about what happens, like say the, the you know, the villain or, or the, the perpetrator wasn't able to do what they were in the dream that they were, that they were doing and it's a different ending. So, you know, there's a lot of data to say it's very successful. It can, it can, it's, it's aimed at alleviating that terrible, that, the distressing nightmare mm-hmm. and it's sort of eradicating it basically, trying to make that one not come around again. Mm-hmm. Unfort- of course, it doesn't mean the other nightmares won't persist and it doesn't mean that your daytime symptoms won't be affected because unfortunately I've seen this firsthand that the, the dream can go away but the daytime distress can increase yeah. as a result. So hopefully you've enjoyed this discussion about dreams. There's so much more we could have talked about. We've really only scratched the surface. So I'm sure we'll come back to it as part of this podcast series. If you're looking for more information on uh, dreams, I can highly recommend Jennifer Wint's book, Dreaming, a Conceptual Framework for Philosophy of Mind and Empirical uh, Research. I've got another great tip for a book, but I'm just going to hold that over to my tip of the month. So you'll hear about that in a minute. Sweet dreams are made of this Who am I to disagree? I travel the world and the So Dave, what's your clinical tip of the month? So it's a little tricky, this one, and this is a much more one for health professionals rather than people trying to think about their own dreams. But if people are reporting dream experiences or different experiences during sleep, uh, think about it using a model called the AIM model. Now, that's a model that Alan Hobson talks about and he's one of the uh, people I'm a big fan of who's written a lot about dreams and Jennifer Wint talked about him in some of the interview with me and it's really thinking about our experiences on three axes the axis of activity in terms of brain activity the axis of inputs internal versus external inputs as to whether we're getting sensory input or imagery from the brain and memory, whether we recall things, and that can also be whether we're high adrenaline activity. Because often when people are having vivid dreams or nightmares, it's a state where there's too much adrenaline activity during sleep. So people are high on the activity axis, still getting a mix of internal and external inputs, which is common in non-REM sleep, but very high on the memory or monoamine axis. And if you conceptualise it in that sort of way, it sort of helps in guiding how to get things better. 
So I saw someone earlier today and was talking through that model with them, and it just helped them understand that the target that we were trying to get to was reducing adrenaline activity or monoaminergic activity during sleep and helped them understand that what they were experiencing wasn't something that was bizarre and meant that something else was broken and they had yet another disorder, but it was just part of the physiology of, in that case, actually anxiety that had pushed up that adrenaline and monoamine levels. So I put a link to some papers about the AIM model in the show notes, uh, and I really recommend that as a way of conceptualising, thinking about experiences and dream experiences when we're managing people with sleep problems. So that leads in actually to my tip of the month that I alluded to. So I'm a big fan of Alan Hobson, and his book, The Dream Drugstore, is one of my all-time favourites. And he talks about altered states of consciousness and how that relates to dreams. Comes at it from a slightly different perspective to Jennifer Wint. So he's not coming at it from a philosophical perspective, but more from a neuroscientific uh, perspective. He's also been around long enough that he's been through the days when people did LSD experiments and looked at dreams and things. So he writes a bit about that in the book. What about you, Moira? What's your tip for the month? Well, my pick, my pick of the month was the ABC here in Australia, our national broadcaster. They did a really good series on, it was called Reboot Your Life mm-hmm. in the last few weeks. And, of course, it was just wonderful that sleep was a big part of that. And they did a whole range. We'll, we'll do a link to the stuff that they did. It was just really interesting and appreci- I was really appreciative to see how much focus was on sleep and really good quality stuff like yeah, in, yeah. more I, in I depth it was really good yeah. because unfortunately just at the moment i think we're in an era of everything's a bit surface level and we've got to, i think i'd like to just go beyond just the the, the six tips for this or the the five yeah. tips for this and that's just sort of a bit that's just a bit quick and easy and dirty and, and whereas this was just it was really considered and was really measured and was just in depth and in quality and, and having the, the experts in the field like and of course the Sleep Health Foundation were consulted and, and liaised a lot with the ABC team. And I just thought it was really great. So that, that caught my eye. Yeah, nice tip. So over the next month, look out for a symposium proposals. So this is for people working and researching in the area of sleep medicine. So there are three major sleep meetings that are relevant for us in twenty seventeen. The Sleep twenty seventeen meeting in Boston in June. World Sleep 2017 in Prague in October, and then also Sleep Down Under, the Australasian Sleep Association's annual scientific meeting, which will be in Auckland in late October. And submissions for symposia for each of those meetings are due uh, in early December, so a good time to start thinking about what you might propose for those conferences and putting those submissions in. Look out for the next uh, episode of our podcast series, uh, which will come out on December 5th. So thanks for listening to the podcast. If you've got any suggestions or questions for us, email us at podcast at sleephub.com.au. If you like the podcast, review us on iTunes, or you can subscribe via any podcast catcher or get the Sleep Talk app via the iOS store. Thanks, Moira, for helping us out with the episode. Thank you. This podcast is not intended as a substitute for your own independent health professional's advice, diagnosis or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider within your country or place of residency with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition.